I haven't proven myself yet. So are you picking me because you think I have the leadership skills and capabilities and you like me? Or are you picking me because you're checking the box and, and it's a Latino? Well, I will never know the answer to that question. But what I do know is this, is that when I was given the opportunity, hopefully I proved myself. That was Rafael Sanchez, Executive Vice President, Chief Impact Officer, and Indianapolis Market President of Old National Bank, talking about how corporate executives and organizations can demonstrate authenticity with their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Raphael, welcome to the 13th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman, and thank you for joining us today. And congratulations on your recent promotion to Executive Vice President, Chief Impact Officer, and Indianapolis Market President of Old National Bank. That's a big title. Um, Will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that led to you becoming not just an attorney, but a local corporate executive here in Indianapolis? Well, thank you, Angela. And let me start by thanking you for having me on your program. We've known each other for a, for a bit, and I'm super excited uh, that uh, you've been so successful and and obviously well-known in the community that you now have your own podcast. So Thank you. So for me to come back and talk to you is a real treat. Second of all, I want to say that I really like it uh, the way you introduced me, so I might invite you to introduce me to other events <laughs> in the community, uh, if you don't mind, because uh, it sounded more important when you said it uh, <laughs> that way. But uh uh, no, uh, thank thank you for that. Um, you know, my my story is very, uh, I would say, maybe unique. But originally, I'm from Puerto Rico, and I think you know my story. But for your listeners, um, I was born and raised in in San Juan, and uh, uh, you know, always wanted to go to law school. And uh, when I went to University of Puerto Rico for my undergrad, I did spend uh, uh, two or three of my formative years in the states because Dad was in the Air Force at the time. He has since then uh, passed away, but. When uh, I graduated from college, I two months later immediately got married to my girlfriend in college uh, at the time, and uh, we both wanted to go to law school and said, "Well, let's move to uh, to the United States and pursue a law degree there." Uh, why Indiana? Which is a question that everybody asks. Well, right. uh, the long story uh, short is that uh, she had been a study abroad student at IPFW, so we decided, okay, where do we know people? That was our due diligence. You were 21, 22 years old. Where do you know people? We know people in Indiana. Let's go there. Right. And then once we get to Fort Wayne, we realized uh, really, okay, there's no law school here. So we started working. And uh, a fact that a lot of people don't realize is where did I start working? Well, I started working at a bank. And then I blinked. And three years of my life had gone by. And I had been still at the bank. Right. Uh, by then, I was a banking center manager. Uh, for National City Bank, which today is PNC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I looked at her and I said, called the timeout, said, wait a minute. We we were obviously making more money than we had ever made before. In Puerto Rico, when I left, I was making, I think, uh, five twenty five an hour. Yeah. Um, but we were comfortable, but this is not what we came here to do. So I said, let's let's take the law school exams, apply to law school, and and we did. And I ended up going to uh, Indiana University uh, uh, Law School, uh, Maurer School of Law down in Bloomington. Uh, graduated from there, started in the big law firm in uh, in Indianapolis. Fast forward a couple of years after that, I met you, mm-hmm. and you were going through law school. And um, 
really uh, always had a knack for being civically engaged. And since the day one, I was a young first year associate at the law firm. I was always out there joining boards and volunteering in the community. In Angela, I practiced law for uh, 13 years at the law firm, became a partner, uh, was the first Latino partner for my law firm at the time. Not sure anymore, but I still think I still might be the only one. Right. <laughs> you know, but but uh, um, uh, I started getting the itch. I wanted to go into the corporate world, and and I didn't. I decided that I didn't want to be a law a, a law firm partner for the rest of my life. No yeah. offense, yeah, yeah, uh, to you and to my uh, dear friends in in the law firm business. I just felt like I, a calling to do something else, and so I jumped off the cliff. I farmed out all my my clients, and I went to a, a small commercial printing company called Fine Line. I know the owner. He had been in my ear, Raphael, will create a position for you. And I thought it was a soft landing. But the minute I did that, the minute I took the plunge and I went into uh, the corporate community, that's when I started getting the phone calls. Mm-hmm. And you know how it is. Like if you're, if you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, example, you're in a practice and there's a job opening for a corporate executive role, nobody's thinking, well, this Dr. Smith is going to leave their medical practice to come do that. You're not even in the conversation. And, and people, if you're an attorney, most of the time, especially if you're a partner in a law firm, you're not a part of the conversation. Corporate executive roles look for corporate executives in other places. Right. And so one thing led to another, and one of those companies was IPL. And I had been on the advisory board for a few years and uh, talked to them at the time, and they, were, they had an opening uh, in, in, at their president CEO position. And so I kind of went through the process there. That took several months. One of the hardest things I'd done in my life. Next thing you know, I'm at IPL. And now I'm president CEO of IPL and drinking through a fire hose. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'd been on an advisory board of a utility, but it's not like, you know, I grew up, you know, in the energy business, right. you know. So really forced myself to have to adapt and learn and apply all the, you know, obviously being a lawyer helps and how you think about things strategically and analytically and all that. And you learn tons about leadership. And I, I, I spent a wonderful uh, two and a half years at IPL when then opportunity presented itself also with Old National. And now it's been four years with Old National. And, uh, and I started as president of private banking for Old National, running the private banking line of business, was the first president for that line of business, really created the structure and the teams and, and the goals and, and had an incredible time. Had a, the best team you can possibly imagine, uh, learned so much. I, I I can't say that enough about leadership, and I, I feel at times you know you uh, well I don't have an MBA I have a JD but I think I, I over time I've acquired an MBA and in, yeah. in experience, and then now the the next opportunity uh, knocked on my door, which is the wonderful uh, title that you just read that I almost want you to read it again before <laughs> we get off the air, which really gives me an opportunity uh, to go back a little bit to sort of my roots. And it's a much more community facing role. Mm-hmm. And a lot of projects I'll be working on are really directed more at the underserved community. While it's still a corporate wide role, and I obviously report directly to the CEO of the, of the bank, my uh, focus predominantly will be in Indianapolis and in central Indiana. Uh, at, at least initially on uh, some really cool projects that I'm going to be working on and, and, you know, just love the opportunity to, to give back to the community and to do it now after all the learnings I've acquired over time. So if you think about it, it's a, a guy from Puerto Rico who became a banker who then became a lawyer who then 
uh, became a partner at the law firm, who then became a utility, uh, uh, a commercial printing executive, who then became a, a utility executive, who now went back to banking. So if you think about it, it's a full circle. Yeah. Starting in banking and hopefully ending in banking, because uh, the older I get, the the less mobile you you feel like you become. Like starting over doesn't really seem appealing, you know. But yeah, never I, say never. I appreciate that. So I, it makes me think of the same thing I thought when I first met you, and you identified me as a scholarship recipient in law school. And I remember thinking then, and I told you oh, I didn't know you were somebody. Like, I didn't know you had the power <laughs> to give me a scholarship. And and that's the same now. You have ascended to this major influential role, major roles in many companies. And I still am like, Raphael really is somebody because just having a general conversation with you. and that's Would you same. mind telling that to my kids? <laughs> I mean, can, if you just come home and just and say that. And you do the same for mine. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. please. <laughs> it, it's touche for sure. So, so Raphael, you mentioned that you're originally from Puerto Rico and you moved to Indiana many years ago. We learned you moved to Fort Wayne initially and then found your way down to Bloomington for law school. Can you describe some of the challenges and some of the culture shock you face in coming from Puerto Rico to not just Indiana, but rural Indiana to make your home as a law student. And then that similar transition when you move to Indianapolis to larger city and just some of the differences that you encountered, some of the things you had to navigate in order to acclimate to this new world, this new role Mm -hmm. and this new life in the U.S. and particularly in Indianapolis. Yeah, so that's a it's an excellent question, Angela, and it's rained a lot since then. You know, it's uh, uh, what twenty six years ago now. But I will tell you that there are those who believe, well, Puerto Rico is the territory of the United States, so I didn't have to like technically immigrate to this country, right? right. I didn't come with a green card, and right. I didn't have to go through immigration. I just bought a plane ticket, right? Right. So we're we're born U.S. citizens. But to equate that to say just just like living in Michigan, right, would be a gross uh, understatement. My entire life was you know predominantly Spanish, Spanish speaking. My undergraduate degree is all Spanish speaking. Our customs, our culture, sure. the way of life, the jobs, the economy, everything is radically different. Yes, you can find a Burger King and a McDonald's, but that doesn't make it you know the same as, sure. as if it's states. So yeah, it's a territory of the United States. But one of the things that I immediately encountered a source of course for my heavy accent i was very uh self-conscious about it and i worked really hard to get rid of it maybe you don't even notice that much of an accent anymore uh because i worked really really hard to get it get get rid of it now it's kind of cool to have it and i wish i had it back right i can't go back (laughs) now it's a terrible fake latino accent you know if i tried but uh, there are things that people take for granted when we went to law school if you think about it that's the first time that i took certainly at that point it's postgraduate coursework in English. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there were some conventions, some rules, some things about grammar and some things that sure. I really didn't didn't really understand. And I had to talk to professors. I remember talking when I was in iCleo and I talked to Professor Roisman mm. who had graded uh, an exam and and put some, some I, I, I'm not, I'm not ambassador to say this anymore now, but back then I would have been, but I didn't even know like literally like the, 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 the symbol for paragraph. Yeah. You know, when she was telling me leave, leave a paragraph, yeah. she put like a P there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. With, you know, I'm like, I didn't know what that was. Yeah. So she's going over the exam with me and she's like, do you know what, you, here, you need to do, I'm like, I, 
you know, she's figuring out like, oh, you're not following what I'm saying. Right, and right. There are basic things that I didn't really know and I had to pick up. But, you know, you, fa- you fast forward to being at the at the law firm and I and I remember and this is not a, a dig to, to anybody or, or, law f- or law firms in general, but just a reality that assumptions that people make sometimes Absolutely. Right? from your schooling to, you know, all the books that are taught here, the classics, you know, whether you read Shakespeare or Macbeth or you read any of these books in undergrad. Well, I didn't. Right. I read the classics from Spain right. and from some other. Uh, so I, I would get questions like, this is in black and white, like an email I'll never forget. Like somebody said, Raphael, do you still have family south of the border? I assume you're Catholic, you know, so I, I imagine you like spicy food. You know, yeah. these are the questions, right, that you get confronted with. And it's just assumptions and generalizations that people make because to some people, like if you say Latino, it equals Mexican. Right. And what people forget to realize is there's 24, 25 Spanish-speaking countries in the world. Right. Mexico is one of them. And I, and I have, you know, I love uh, the, the, my Mexican friends and community, but, but they have a separate culture. Right. And Puerto Rico is a separate culture. And so just educating people on what it means to be from Puerto Rico and how that doesn't equate whatever you might have in your head right. about what it is. But life is very different. I'm going to give you another example. In Puerto Rico, people are super friendly and uh, outgoing and you could be at your home watching TV or about getting ready to eat and the doorbell rings and it's somebody who just came unannounced to visit you. That is not rude. It is actually very culturally permissible to just show up for, to people's homes without an appointment or a heads up or whatever. And what people do is that mom would serve them a plate and right. they sit with us and they eat dinner and nobody would think twice about it. Yeah. Here, you know, uh, it took me a while to even those customs, those minor customs that everybody wouldn't even think about. But like to me, like, you mean if I'm going to go visit you, I got to like let you know in advance and you're going to be home and or I got to wait till you invite me to come over because I mean th- those little minor things there are cultural differences that you have to learn how to navigate. Well, Raphael, you should know I am a stickler on that. I have friends right now who have not come to my house because I have not invited them and I'm serious about that. Do not show <laughs> up. So I'm going to tell you, don't show up over my house unannounced talking about this is culture. Now come on, custom. Angela, you got to be inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. And I understand that, you know, while those seem like minor things now, that's huge to navigate and overcome in the context of an educational or a, you know, job situation. So so let's revisit the banking uh, mm-hmm. opportunities because you basically said you've come full circle. You started in banking and now you've come back to banking. And so I want to talk about, you know, we know that historically banks, not just in Indiana, but nationwide, have employed some discriminatory lending practices that have negatively affected black and brown communities uh, and particularly women for years that have prevented home ownership or business ownership. When I started this podcast, I talked to three women who were entrepreneurs who talked about some of their challenges in getting bank loans in order to start their company. So, you know, even though we know as lawyers that those discriminatory lending practices are illegal, we also know that in practicality, they they still exist in some form or fashion in some capacity. So 
What do you do or does Old National do as a banking organization to make sure that discriminatory lending practices like redlining and some of the things we've heard about for years don't hinder women and diverse business owners or homeowners from realizing their dreams? How, yeah. how do you go about that? Yeah, and no, that's a very important question. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about that. Well, first of all, you know me from like a long time. And uh, when when you and I lear- uh, met each other, we were talking about the context of diversity. I was showing up for a, a, a group that was a diverse lo- uh, law students, right. uh, and I came to speak at the at the law school. So this has been something that's always been near and dear to to me uh, personally. Uh, I also want to say that uh, when it comes to Old National, and I can only speak to Old National in my experience there. Sure. You know, they have one of the most diverse leadership teams that I've ever known. And if you, uh, you know, if you just look and you Google executive leadership team and you look at the, not, not in terms of gender, but in, in ethnic uh, racial diversity, it, it's off the charts. Now, having said that, been in, in my current role for what, you know, three weeks, a month, <laughs> you know, but I am excited about all the opportunities. And one of the things that we're looking at, and by the way, every company that I've ever talked to, whether you're a bank or not, and I would probably mark the George Floyd incident, at least in my head, is is like the marker sure. when I felt like things changed and they didn't fade away. They kind of changed maybe hopefully for good right. um, in terms of bringing awareness to a lot of issues. I don't know of a company that is not in some form, or shape or form, but they're in some part of their whole DNI and journey. Sure. Now, some are more advanced than others, right. but everybody, at least I feel, have good intentions and are really looking to, you know, how can we be more effective and efficient? And I don't think Old National is any different, you know. But one of the things that I'm really excited about, and you may have seen on social media, is that, you know, we we, we opened a loan production office in the international marketplace right there on 38th and, let's say, Moeller Road uh, on the west side. Very diverse community, what, 100 languages spoken in a two-mile radius and wow. about 100 diverse ethnic restaurants are located there. We engaged in a, a partnership with the, with the Interna- International Marketplace Coalition and Mary Clark, who is a tremendous leader for that community. You know, that whole entire community is being revitalized as well. Right. We did a groundbreaking ceremony to uh, announce a uh, full-service banking center that will be located there where, uh, again, we're going to bring a full suite of service and products to that community, which is underbanked and underserved. We've got an incredibly diverse uh, banking team that is, is there. I've already talked about our executive leadership team, but the, the, the banking center staff is, is incredible. Um, We're looking at a location on the uh, East side of Indianapolis, probably right off around that 38th street corridor as well to do the same thing. You heard about food deserts. Well, sure. there's banking deserts too. Yeah. And so we, we, we're very serious about that. I think my announcement, hopefully, and my role and what we're going to be doing is also a further announcement about how serious uh, we, we are about this. But one of the exciting things that I'll tease you about, but I'm not going to go into detail because I'm still flushing things out. But one of the things that I hope to be able to do here in Indianapolis is help launch a minority deposit institution. Oh. Uh, that will be that will national will make a, a serious financial commitment to 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 provide some capital seed funding uh, for it. For those who don't know what a minority deposit institution is, is basically a bank that is it, it could either be minority owned and controlled, 
or minority led mm -hmm. or both. Mm -hmm. But the, the the genesis of that and why that's important is because you're right. You you look historically back and you look at banking services. You know, I want to I want to give you some data points that I I remember I made a point to bring because I I think it's really eye opening and it kind of gives you a backdrop to your listeners about why this is important. But there's a huge wealth gap. Sure. You know, and in 2019, which is the last study that I've seen, the net worth, uh, the average, the median net worth for uh, white families uh, was seven and a half, seven point eight times that of a black family. So you're looking at 188,000 to compared to 24,000. Oh. So that's data point number one. Number two, only 2.3% of all businesses in the United States are black owned, even though blacks represent 14.2% of the entire U.S. population, right? So you're not, you're not there yet. Now, 95% of that 2.3% that are black owned are non-employee firms. What does that mean? It means that it's a sole proprietorship. Right. Okay. So 6% of all businesses in the country are owned by Latinos, even though Latinos have a higher percentage of representation in the population at 18%. Okay. Only 59% of all blacks are fully banked. Black credit scores are 57 points below on average than a white individual and uh, Latinos' scores are 33 points below. And then finally, home ownership, which you talked about. Okay, yeah. so home ownership for blacks was, in 2020, was 46.4% with a median home value of 150,000. Latinos were 50.9% and whites were 75.8% with a median home value of 230,000. Right. What do all these data points suggest and tells you? that the, the wealth gap is real. Yep. It's not imagined, it's, it's, a, it's real. And so there's a financial equity piece to all of this and, you know, and, and studying and, and learning myself, I'm on my own journey um, and just figuring out ways that we can be impactful. There's also, a, there's, a, there's a theme called financial dignity, you know, which of course we're trying to bring. Having a minority deposit institution would allow that, that company, that bank to structure policies and in and, and programs and be able to tap into some additional resources that both the federal government and state government can provide that will help bring access to credit for black and brown individuals to start their own business. Because part of the problem is you see those low business representation. Well, business is what creates wealth. Right. And so if they're all connected. If there's not enough wealth in our communities, then there's less home ownership right. and, and the, the less people they can employ and the less we move the needle on these things. So what happens is with uh, with just you know regulation, with pressure from in investors, from you know like we're obviously in a, in a capitalistic society. Well, you have to go way, 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 way back to uh, this country and how things were founded and how the policies and, and rules were set up to really uncover why after you know two hundred years things are where they are. I think it's pretty obvious why they are what they where they are. Now what are we gonna do about it? And right. I think uh for Old National to step forward to do all the things that we're doing, to do the minority deposit institution, to 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 put these offices in the in the international marketplace. We've got a, a other programs. We've got down payment assistance. You can get up to five thousand dollars for closing costs and wow. uh, down payment for individuals. There's a lot of things, Angela, in addition to not just 
you know, doing these things that that are obviously external facing. But if you look at the makeup of our company and you look up the makeup of our leadership team, you won't see an absence of uh, minority individuals and, and women in, in high ranking uh, uh, leadership positions, which is why I love working at Old National. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do believe that they are firmly committed to helping solve this problem. But this is a problem that not one company can solve. Yeah. You know, it takes a whole village to have to do this, but I'm excited that we get to start and do this in Indianapolis. Um, because as I think I told you, maybe when, when we met, you know, I affectionately uh, call myself a Hoosierican, you know, <laughs> because uh, at this point, after 26 years, yeah. you know, you just got Indiana climbed. and Puerto Rico, it's Hoosierican. <laughs> I trademarked that, by the way. So if anybody <laughs> listening wants to use it, they have to call me. But um, but no, I, I, I firmly uh, love the state. Uh, it, it's not perfect. And sometimes it makes mistakes. But I, I do believe and I look at the opportunities that provided me. Yeah. Uh, you know, 14 years after arriving in the city, I was already running the utility. I mean, I, I, I do think this is uh, filled with opportunities, but we can't bury our heads in the sand and we have to really start, you know, taking actionable steps. And that's part of what I'm going to be doing in the near term with Old National. Yeah, so that's that's very informative, and I appreciate you um, giving us some insights there. I, I must believe that having such a diverse leadership team also helps you or empowers you, enables you to make real impact. In other words, you know, so many corporate leaders that I talk with are fighting that internal battle, right? They're trying to convince their colleagues and peers that what we're talking mm-hmm. about, inequitable financial and lending practices are real. Uh, systemic racism is real. You know, they're trying to still convince people that these issues that many minority people know to be real are real and therefore are um, worth actually targeting and focusing on helping to rectify those issues with policies, procedures, et cetera, in a corporate environment. I'd like to know, as a Latinx representative, what do you feel like are specific challenges that the Latinx community face, not just in lending practices, but just generally in corporate environments that may be different from, you know, what a, a black person may face or a LGBTQ? You know, what are specific issues that may be particularly relevant to Latinx business owners, homeowners, entrepreneurs that are not necessarily on the top of mind when people think about diversity issues that may be encountered? Excellent question. And uh, thank you for not uh, making me the sole representative <laughs> of the Latino community because I don't think I can speak for everybody. But, uh, you know, here's some distinguished, you know, and I'll specifically distinguish like Latino from black. Yeah. We're both minorities, but rarely do you think of language barriers when you're talking about black. Yeah. But you think about language barriers when we talk about Latino because they, again, 25, 26 Spanish speaking countries in the world, different varying yes. levels of proficiency in speaking or reading and writing uh, English. Uh, so, so, whereas one would be strictly the color of their skin, sure. the other one, uh, you know, has, uh, you know, the language piece of it. But the, the biggest challenge, I think, for Latinos in general is just the, it invokes thoughts about immigration. Right, right, right. And in my case, where it doesn't even apply, it doesn't matter, right? Right, because it, it it brings to life like 
the undocumented right. and what do you do with them and they're breaking our laws and should we give them driver's license and should we give them should they be given insurance should they be able to tap social security like right. all the the questions that nobody ever wants to answer right or right. or it just becomes a hot button you know you get you get sucked into to all of that but you know i think a, a thing that might be thematically consistent maybe maybe even with with uh, black individuals i don't know i can only speak for myself but Angela, one of the things that always has bugged me in the back of my mind is that when I've and I've been blessed, right? I've been, I've I've had these tremendous opportunities, both sure. both professionally, but also civic engagement wise. Like, how cool is it to be co chair for the NBA All Star Game and you know secretary for the Super Bowl bid and and you know chair just finished chairing United Way now chairing the Boy Scouts. Like, I I've had a a number of uh, of really cool opportunities and. One thing that I never wanted to do, and I think I might have told you this. I don't know if it'll if you'll remember or not. Uh, if not, just pretend like I told you this a long, <laughs> long time ago. But is 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 I never wanted to be given something, never wanted to be, you know, preordained or a role or anything or get a promotion or anything like that because I'm Latino. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I I I want to uh, get it because i'm a good leader sure or a subject matter expert or whatever the case may be who happens to be latino sure right don't lead with latino and it's been a big pet peeve of mine because what happens is at first when i started in this community i couldn't really tell the difference right because i don't people all know me right i haven't proven myself yet so are you picking me because you think I have the leadership skills and capabilities and you like me? Or are you picking me because you're checking the box and, and it's a Latino? Well, I will never know the answer to that question. But what I do know is this, is that when I was given the opportunity, hopefully I proved myself. Right. And then the subsequent opportunities after that was because I proved myself. Right. Right. That's at least what I choose to believe. But as a, as a, you know, former president of a utility and in, in now in the banking and these are different executive roles, partner to law firm, you can't help sometimes when you're in meetings and wonder if the people sitting across from you think that the only reason you're a partner or the only reason you became an executive here or executive there is because they gave that to you because you're a Latino. Yeah. And so I feel like we have this burden to have to prove ourselves twice as much as the average person. Because I f use that as fuel to to prove them wrong. Like to the extent that you held that belief and you think that I'm just a token, you know, right. Latino, uh, I, I will prove you wrong yeah. and I will show you my leadership. And so I think that that is, it might not be unique to Latinos. I, I, I definitely can see um, uh, this being applicable in the black community as well, because some people just think think that, and I'm gonna tell you why that, why that, why that phenomenon happens is because back in the day, and again, this is Raphael theory here, so sure. I don't represent the views of Old National Bank, or, or so this is Raphael Sanchez, the individual, and not the reporter on Channel 6. But <laughs> I, thank you for that clarification for all you listeners out there. Yes, there are two of us in Indianapolis. But um, you cannot put us all in the same bucket. Yeah. And how do I explain this? When when you're a, a young Latino and you're, and you're, and you're growing up in this uh, city, uh, you try to get a job at a law firm and way back in the day when they were looking for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they didn't have the, the E and the I in there yet. It was just the plain old D. That's right. They were looking for, dare I say, a check the box. It was more of a check the box. Like we need to hire a Latino. We need to hire a black student or somebody uh, so that we can, you know, 
show up and say we're diverse and and, and maybe it wasn't as facetious as that, but that's certainly like when you look back, I mean, 20 some years later, the numbers are still are where they are, right? right? It's not like much has changed. Right. Uh, so what I'm telling you is I do believe that in the hiring process of selecting that Latino, maybe selecting that black individual, that candidate, they may not have employed the full-fledged due diligence that they would do with anybody. I believe in a meritocracy. I believe that, you know, you should be qualified for the position. And if you happen to be sure. white, black, brown, purple, it's good. But 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 a tiebreaker could be like, hey, you bring a different perspective. That's right. That's good. And everybody should feel okay, be okay with that. But uh, I do believe that they may have made some bad hiring early on. Be, for the sake of having a black or for the sake of having a Latino. Yeah. And then what happens is then those hires then not surprisingly don't pan out. Right. And so what they reflexively get and they, they generalize is that, well, okay, well, we had a bad experience before when we hired a Latino. It didn't yeah. really work out. Now the Latinos that follow have a harder hill to climb because they have to change the minds of the people who did it wrong in the first place. Yeah. And so... um I don't know if that's making sense, but but I, I think, uh, you know, if if you have a few bad hires in the non-minority population, nobody ever thinks about it. That's, that's just right. the cost of doing business, that's right. right? Nobody ever thinks, well, we got to be make sure we, we vet this these people again, you know, next time. No, it, Nobody gives it a second thought. Like, right. hey, you win some, you lose some. But when you're a member of a minority group and then you hire and you make a bad hire, it, it sort of has a staying power. Right in the minds of people. And I think that's something too that has held us back from progress in many industries uh, because before it was a check the box. I do believe that now genuinely a lot more companies are moving away from a check the box. They realize that that doesn't work anymore. But uh, I, I do think it sometimes it takes these big events in society to happen to awaken uh, you know, our hearts and souls and start really doing some self-reflection, some thinking like how, how can we make these processes better uh, but those are just some examples of things that I think that are are challenging uh, to Latinos for yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I can tell you as a black woman, that is a, a common experience, like being always feeling like you have to show up and prove yourself uh, because they may have hired you because they just think that you're, you know, a black woman, you're going to fail, you're whatever. Like you absolutely have to show up. And, you know, we've talked about work twice as hard, do whatever you need to do to to demonstrate. Now, I, I can tell you, I'm an example of, you know, an opportunity that was given to me that I believe, you know, I have now proven myself and have, Lord willing, opened the door such that black women and diverse women and people coming after me don't have such a hard time. But I think you're exactly right. I know for myself, I have not gotten an opportunity because a company was still reeling from a prior experience from a black woman that they hadn't gotten over. Um, Jimmy McMillan, who you know well as I do, said on a podcast previously that you can't cheat DNI like a a scorned lover, you know, like, oh, my goodness, my heart's so broke. That didn't work out. Now I'll never do it again. Right. It's one person, one opportunity. And to your point, companies don't have that same vantage point when we're dealing with white men or even white women. You don't have one not work out and say, OK, we're not hiring any more white men or white women. It just didn't work out. So what your point is, is that 
that same premise has to be applied to everyone and give everybody the opportunity to succeed or fail, right? right. Because everyone has that opportunity. So I, that leads me back to a question going back to when I first met you, that DEI session where you and I met. And during that session, you were specifically speaking to the diverse students and talking about how being in a lesser diverse city may actually be an advantage for diverse business professionals, diverse law students, diverse lawyers, et cetera. And I completely resonated with that because that had been my experience. It's my experience that if you are a diverse person, certainly the burden's on you. As I say, all eyes are on you. That's for sure. But if you meet the challenge and actually excel, it's been my experience that you actually do have greater acceleration, greater advancement because you are in a lesser diversity. So um, that was something that I don't think I'd ever heard anyone articulate until you and I were in that session. Yep. And you were kind of persuading law students like, I know you came from Atlanta and L.A. and all these other cities and you're thinking you're just going to be in Indiana for these three or four years to go to school and you're heading back. But consider yes. staying and what what that may do for your career. Talk about that, because I think that is a unique advantage that a lesser diverse city like a Indianapolis in the Midwest may have that I don't think we often focus on. We always focus on what we don't have and what we don't offer in the context of DEI. But I think that's a rare and unique advantage. So can you speak to that? Yes. And uh, thank you for remembering something from like almost 20 years ago or something like that. But, I remember. but uh, <laughs> you know how the old thing goes, the more things change, the more things stay the same. That's right. I, I will tell you that I still fundamentally believe that Indianapolis, and just because we're located in Indianapolis, but I think Indianapolis and cities like Indianapolis have a lot to offer uh, members of minority groups and communities. But if they only stop for a second to think about, and I know it's counterintuitive, but as I always tell, and you might have remembered this from when I spoke at the law school, if I had a dollar for every Latino I ever met, in uh, in my professional career that I talk to, they want to talk and and about law and career paths and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, they said uh, they were uh, looking to go someplace that they had people that look like them and that they felt more comfortable, i.e., anywhere in Florida, right? California, Chicago, New York, right? Texas, you name it. I'd be a millionaire, right? And I spent a lot, vast majority of my time and still do whenever I get a chance to convince people that that is not the right way to think about it. Uh, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. And to your point, when you have cities like this that are still growing and thriving and they've got really new industries coming in and, you know, this Indianapolis is becoming a, a you know, aside from COVID, you know, and the setback that all cities encountered, uh, you know, we were on a really good glide path. Um and, you know, I think with companies more and more looking for diverse talent right. and just the opportunities that come with it, even in volunteering and civic opportunities and boards looking for a different uh, diverse talent, you have a really big chance of standing out, right? especially as a young professional, uh, to really uh, make it your own and, uh, and, and, to, and to, you know, basically become a leader and accelerate, I believe, your professional career by just staying and, and toughing it out. And, uh, and and proving to people uh, you have what it takes uh, as versus like a Latino going to any anywhere in Miami and says, well, 
what do you got? Well, I, I speak Spanish. Well, I got like 50 people on right. staff who can speak Spanish. What else do you got? You right. know, you, you don't have a distinguishing characteristic. Right. Uh, so I, I think from a marketing perspective, building your own profile, uh, you know, it, it definitely makes sense to stay. Now, what's the one thing that I remember feeling when I was growing up in the city and I was a young Latino? I had literally one foot in the Latino community going to all the Latino events and supporting all the Latino organizations. And then I had the other foot in the non-Latino community going to Indie Chamber events and a bunch of other, you know, non-Latino because I was determined to meet people, expand my network and all that. To the hardcore, some hardcore friends, I love them dearly in the Latino community. I wasn't Latino enough. Right. You know, because I was spending too much time outside of the but listen we can all stay in our own little communities and reminisce and talk about why nobody seems to get opportunities or we can go and do something about it right. you know and i i think that where the where the where the sort of the power structure lies it's not going to be if you confine yourself to just don't, don't ever turn your back on the if you're a latino don't turn your back on the latino community there's ways for you to obviously continue to stay engaged if you're black don't turn your back on the black community you obviously stay engaged but don't become an exclusive member of the black community right don't become an exclusive member of the latino community because part of the challenge and part of what we have to do as leaders is to help bring everybody together right and you can't do that in isolation uh, and then we can't sit there and complain about not getting opportunities when nobody outside of our respective minority communities know who we are. Right. right. So to me, I've been blessed. I, I would do it all over again the same way, probably a few less boards at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, Indianapolis, I think, proved to me that it was a city that would welcome somebody like me that didn't grow up here, didn't play football here, didn't, yes. there really wasn't a, a name brand. And and if they thought that maybe they were hiring the reporter on Channel 6, they would quickly <laughs> realize that I wasn't him. Um, but, but you know, yeah, there's been opportunities and I made the best of it. And like you said, and you're a living example of that too, Angela. Absolutely. Is to be in a, the best, one of the best things you can do as a leader, as a, as a minority woman, and for me as a minority male, is to be an example to our peers and our, our our fellow brothers and sisters who can see okay right because it, it has to like it takes one to know one you have to like be able to visualize it and that's why even within our respective companies like how does a, a person become an employer of choice well first of all it starts with people going to look at the makeup of the organization like right do you have diversity within your ranks? And if they're within your ranks, like at what levels are they? You know, like, so So to me, we have to engage, we have to lead, we have to lead by example, and we have to be able to bring people along. There wasn't uh, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, if you want to date me, uh, uh, my phone would ring and somebody else wanted to be on their board and I had to start, start saying no. You know, there were only a handful of us in the Latino community who were getting calls. If you're listening, you know who you are. And we were dying for there to be, you know, more Latinos. We knew there were out there, but like, come, come. There's a lot more opportunity. We can't do all of this. Right. Like, like, I don't want to be the only member in the spotlight for the Latino community. Right. I don't speak for the Latino community. I'm one member of the Latino community. Right. There are multiple religions 
they're multiple cultures they're multiple like there's no one size fits all and you can't speak for the black community right i mean Absolutely. there's different religions there too there's different cultures and different points of view there are contrary to popular belief there are democrats who are black and there are republicans who are black and right. the same thing goes for the latino community we're not homogeneous population right but sometimes people think we are sure but so i relish and thrive on and welcome this new crop of leaders coming in through the Latino community. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's the same thing for the black community. I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, there's only a really small number and a handful of people. Things have changed. Yeah. I love that change, but I think it, you're right. I think it's something that we definitely have to, you, you look back and reflect on, stay the course, stay here, don't go back and just be one more. I like to call it be a big fish in a little pond and right. just be another guppy in the sea. Right, right, right. I, I appreciate that advice because it it just kind of allowed me to stay the course. I, As I said, I had lived that experience. I had a previous career, but again, I had never heard anyone articulate that in the way that you did. And it made sense. And I'm still here 10 years later and have, you know, and have your own podcast, have my own podcast <laughs> and a whole practice in law and a whole lot of things that 10 years ago when you and I were talking, I couldn't have imagined. I only think that happens in Indianapolis. That doesn't happen if I'm in Atlanta or, you know, Chicago or, or it might take you 30 years to happen. Exactly. In when yeah. I don't even have a voice anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Raphael, let me ask you this because you mentioned, you know, representing the Latino community. You are one of few men that I've had on the podcast so far, and I already mentioned that Jimmy was one, but I, I focused a lot on women because we know that diverse women in particular are always the bottom of the barrel. We always come up short, not just with equity and pay, but opportunities, experiences, everything. But I don't want to negate or overlook the specific, I asked you, you know, what are specific challenges that the Latino community faces? What are also specific challenges that diverse men face as compared to diverse women that maybe women don't appreciate because that's not, or I don't appreciate because that's not my lived experience. What are some things that you have encountered or maybe you know of current diverse men that may be encountering in corporate environments that are specific to men that probably the greater population doesn't really appreciate? Well, one I already talked about, which, you know, it's it's not necessarily gender specific, but just the fact that uh, overcoming the assumption that the reason why you're sitting at the table to begin with is because you're a Latino. Yeah. yeah. Right. But another thing that I think that um, I think it holds true for men and women, especially if you're Puerto Rican, and I say this jokingly, but not, and those who are Puerto Rican will know, uh, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I'm a very passionate individual. And when I say passionate, and I know that this is a podcast and people can't see it, but like whether you move your arms <laughs> and you make expressions while you're talking yeah. and your arms are flailing and yeah. you do like that, the average Joe might think I'm upset right. or heated or something like that. And if, if I, again, go back, if I had a dollar for every time that, you know, I displayed my passion in a meeting about something that we're talking about, whether it's any one of the number of corporate settings I've been in, I'm sure for a lot of people would be like, not sure what to do with me, right, right? right? Because like I'm bringing the temperature up in the room, but people understand like 
if I go like this, like that's that's my Thanksgiving. Like when I was in Puerto Rico, like every that that was the conversation at the at, while we were eating turkey. Right. I mean, nobody would think twice about it. Like in school or in college or in the workplace, uh, people communicate like that in Puerto Rico, and it's it's par for the course. Yeah. But you bring somebody like that, high energy, what appears to be very passionate individual, and you bring them into a corporate setting. Oftentimes, you get misunderstood. Yeah. So I had two choices to make. Either continue to be the passionate Raphael with arms flailing, very animated, talking, whatever, for everything. And, you know, at, at lowest volume is a seven, you know, um, <laughs> and, you know, or or I have to also engage in some form of compromise yeah. myself. Yeah. I'm not going to stop being who I am. Yeah. Right. I'm going to still be passionate. And when I join something or I'm on a board or something, like I'm, I'm engaged. I'm all in. Yeah, I'm engaged. Absolutely. I'm engaged. And, yep. and and anybody who invites me to do it, or if I'm emceeing an event, I mean, they know what they're going to get. That's right. right. But I've learned to, with somewhat of professional maturity and experience to dial it down a little bit, yeah. depending on the role that I'm occupying and what the setting is. And so I have a little bit more emotional intelligence to, right, to right. figure that out without sacrificing the what makes me what i believe yeah makes me different and makes me unique relative to who's sitting at the table yeah right yeah. because that's the whole point of diversity right is to have different backgrounds perspectives and therefore the byproduct of of the thinking is supposed to be better right because you're it's it's sparking innovation and it's it, it and it's you're really being more representative of the community so i try not to sacrifice that but i've had to sac i've had to pull back sometimes angela if i'm being honest i've had to pull back yeah and you would say, well, is inclusion, you know, the the D, the I and the D and I, is inclusion that the bank or the utility or the law firm, they have to just let me be who I am, however I am, 100% of the time, no questions asked, no consequences. Right. No. Right. I mean, the answer is no. That's right. But there is a little bit of a freedom within a framework, right? Yeah. And so I have to be able to 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 show my true colors, like how how what makes Raphael Raphael. But Raphael also has to respect the fact that not everybody is is into that, yeah, you know, like or, or like responds that. <laughs> responds that way. And so I think it's it's just striking the balance, you know. It, it's it's bringing my skill sets, my experiences, my thoughts, my passion but packaging it in a way that honestly is much more strategic and much more effective. I can be the arms flailing and the passionate individual. And trust me, everybody who knows me knows that I have been. And some people will be like, Oh, what the heck was that? <laughs> well, that's nothing. It's just Raphael, you know, but, uh, and, and, and it's cool. We're cool. I'll give you a hug like two minutes later, like, yeah. you know, but, but, uh, I've had to learn how to temper that. And I think that does come with age. That is so so on point because I can tell you it's not a gender thing. I have a really good girlfriend who is Brazilian who has spoken many times to me about how she got coached on the arms flailing. That's a real thing. And I do think that is Latino specific as Very compared so. to that's yeah. real. So I appreciate that because I wouldn't have thought about that. But when you said that, I'm like, I know that to be true because she has mentioned it and she was so put off by it. Like, it's just me. It's my 
our culture. This is how we talk. This is how we communicate. But I think she, too, with age, has kind of dialed it back. She doesn't lost that part of herself. So so in speaking with that, you just said, does authenticity mean that my corporate environment just has to accept me however I am, however that comes? And I think we've talked about previously, that's not the case. There is authenticity. And then there's too much, right? Like everything, as I talked with, um, I don't know if it was Holly or someone else about, you know, everyone doesn't have to be exposed and allowed to see everything, right? There's a time and a place for everything. So when we talk about authenticity, because certainly that's always a question that I talk about with regard to DEI, because that's one of the pillars, is allowing people to be their authentic selves, to come to work and have, you know, the the value, feel valued being their authentic self. But I often think when we as corporate leaders talk about authenticity without any context, young Younger business professionals hear that as, oh, I can just, you know, this is me. I'm authentic. I'm coming to you as I am. And the reality is, I think that EQ and many of us as corporate leaders recognizes, sure, there's a time and a place for everything. And maybe your corporate picnic is not the proper place, you know, to demonstrate whatever it is that is authentic to your personality, your culture. So speak to that a little bit, because I do think, you know, again, I think in the context of um, more senior business professionals, when we talk about authenticity, we know what we're talking about. But I think when more junior business leaders who are just getting started off don't quite understand what that means. So speak to me about being authentic, being able to be authentic, because I think you're you and I are both at places where just like you said, I couldn't be at Old National if I couldn't be the true Raphael. I couldn't be at Barnes. One of the reasons I've been, people ask me all the time, how have you been at Barnes so long or what keeps you there? I actually am able to be Angela. And that's all the flailing of the arm sometimes. That's all that. But, you know, I've proven myself. People know my passion. They know my authenticity. They know if you invite Angela to a meeting, she's going to tell you exactly what she thinks. Now, I've learned over time to you know, speak in a way that people can hear me, but the the realness is always there. So again, when you're speaking to younger professionals, talk to me about how you balance that authenticity strategically so that it serves you versus serving someone else. Well, again, great question. And I will start by saying that just because you can right. doesn't mean you should. All right. And that's a that's a lesson that you don't learn until sometimes later in life. Right. But um yeah, I, I should be able to I can take the position that Raphael should be able to speak what's on Raphael's mind and if somebody doesn't like it, then that's their problem and I you know, I'm gonna have my way and I'm gonna speak up and I'm gonna, you know, what I believe is right and you know, principle this, principle that. You can do it. Right. I don't know how far you get, you right. know, but you can do it. Uh, or how long you'll last. Exactly. And <laughs> and so I think, I think, uh, I hate to say learn to play the game because yeah. this is not a game. This is lives and professions and careers. But you do become more savvy about how you could be more effective. Right. And the loudest person in the room is usually not the most effective one. Right. So there are ways to deliver a message, uh, to do it very diplomatically to do it uh, in a way that uh, persuades the most amount of people if you're trying to like get buy-in for example on something and so 
just learning when to push, when to pull. Right. Um, is something that is, is sort of a, an art that even today I, I, I have to perfect. Uh, I, my CEO will know what I'm talking about, but I will not share it on, on this uh, podcast. But, you know, I, I joked with him the other day because I had a, a conversation with him and I said, you know what? I like to think that I was emotionally, I'm, I'm emotionally intelligent. But in the last conversation you and I had, we were eight, I was 80% emotion and 20% intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but I recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. As a 48 year old, you know, now, oh my God, I can't believe I said that on, on the air. But uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, as a 48 year old, I, I know that now I know when I wasn't at my best. Right. right. I know when I shouldn't have said this or right. I should have said that. You asked the Raphael 20 years ago, I'd be completely oblivious to right. I had to reel that one back in. But I'm 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 so happy that I can have that type of conversation with the CEO right. because I, I think this you being self-aware right. is the first step in in uh solving this this issue. Yeah. But I think here's the thing, in in my entire professional career in Indianapolis, I never you can ask anybody. I've never gone MIA from the Latino community. I, I didn't like, you know, come here, start uh, getting involved with the Latino community. Then all of a sudden I get promoted or I get all these other opportunities and I disappear and then only come back later, you know, 15, 20 years later. Well, people in the Latino community might question my authenticity in terms of like, do you really, are you really here just for show or are you here because you really care about us or whatever? I never left. Right. Right. And anybody who knows, even outside of the Latino community, like my civic engagement, my involvement in this city has been. You know, I don't even, if I look back and I think back and I look at my resume and all the boards I've been on and all the positions I've held, I'm like, how oh, in the world did I even do that? And why did I say yes? Right. Um, I don't think anybody can seriously question like my love for the city, my support of the Latino community, my support just in this community in general. So for me, my role, current role right now, coming back, I hope that people see that I'm authentic and genuine in that in every way possible. Now, I think there's something that to be said, we have to talk about corporate authenticity. And I think organizations also have an obligation too to be authentic. And I'm gonna tell you, give you an example of what I think is a trap that I think many organizations fall into. And maybe maybe it's unaware, they're unaware. But we all know that there's Black History Month. Right. And then we all know that there's Hispanic Heritage Month. Right. And we all know what months those are. And we all know that the the corporately uh, responsible thing to do is to celebrate the culture and do events during those months. But my biggest criticism sometimes is, if that's all you do, if you celebrate Black Black History or the Black community once once uh, once for a, a month for one year, right, and then that's it, it becomes perfunctory, right, performative, uh, or Latinos as well. Like you have to celebrate diversity basically every day, right? Right. Like it's got to be embedded in our in our. It can't be a, again uh, something that we check the box. I'm not saying and being critical of organizations that celebrate Black History Month or celebrate uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. But I am just saying, don't just do that and call it a day. Sure. Right. Because because to me, if you disappear from those communities and you just come back during that one time a year, yeah. Can you really blame the fact that your engagement scores or your 
support from those communities is going to be minimal at best. Right. I mean, because nobody really believes that. That's right. I mean, so so to, so to me, like there, you have an individual responsibility, but then I think it flows also into the in the corporation. It, you can't just be here when a you know big event happens and then show up, yeah. uh, or during uh, you know. Uh, dedicated month of the year. I mean, where are you the other 11 months of the sure. year? Like, what's your presence? What's your support? And so even when we look at like supporting organizations in town and sponsorships, and we call it, like to call them partnerships, you know, and me and my role as sort of Indianapolis market president, d and is a big part of that. I mean, sure. we, we look at that too. Like, what are we do supporting? And we try to help organizations by saying, look, we like your event, but we really don't see how you're being more welcoming to these other parts of the community. They go back, refine it, they come back, and then we support it. Yeah. But, well, now we've made, Impact. become like an agent, mm -hmm. a change agent, mm -hmm. you know. So those are the kinds of things that I love to do and uh, you'll be seeing a lot more of. But but I think uh, I think there's individual uh, authenticity and corporate authenticity, and I think they kind of go hand in hand. I yeah. mean, you need to. So, so that's really good. I've never heard this phrase, corporate authenticity, but I want to ask you about it a little more. So you're now a bigwig, right? You're an executive and- Allegedly. Okay, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> we And you're at the executive level and you have, you know, um, people who are under you, what I will call the rank and file employees, right? And so I've been in corporate environments where the executive leadership rolls out awesome DEI initiatives and programs, but sometimes they get lost in the mix. They don't quite trickle down to the rank and file employees such that those employees don't feel or see the change in culture, the change in initiative, the change to be more inclusive and such. And so I've always thought that, or at least in my experience, is an issue with middle management. The executive leadership has it together and are rolling out initiatives and programs, but they don't quite trickle down to the rank and file employees such that that employee experience doesn't really change. And so I, I've always wondered why there is not more acceptance of DNI initiatives being tied to corporate executives' compensation in order to effectuate those programs in a more, you know, inclusive and overall way, such that that does become a change in culture and a change in the employee experience. But I certainly don't see that happening in Indiana. So now that you have kind of a, a high level view from the executive leadership, what do you think is a reason why so many executive DNI programs don't quite trickle down such that they really change the culture of the company and, and end up feeling like less corporate authenticity and more just rhetoric or, you know, talking points or whatever? Yeah. How, how do you Yeah. Well, that? I mean, uh, if I if I had a really great answer to that question, I'd write a book and then retire and probably become a millionaire um, because that's the question that everybody has been grappling with, right? right. It's like you, just hearing you talk and and mentioning, um, you know, why why doesn't DNI programs and outcomes uh, get uh, affixed or tagged to the you know maybe incentive plans or performance metrics that affect the compensation? And that's an interesting question. They go, which also raises the question back to authenticity, because 
then our corporate leaders and even the middle managers are 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 they doing it because they authentically believe in in DNI or because they're getting paid to do it? You know, and and so are are we any better off? I mean, are, well, yeah, some things are getting done, but if they're getting done for the wrong reasons, so I don't know how I feel about that. But I, I really uh, authenticity means like it, it's genuine. Like you, right. it starts with hiring the right people that have the same values. I, I'm a firm believer that DNI and and I believe in all the benefits of DEI, and and I've lived them throughout my life myself. And I I don't have to think much about it because I try to live and breathe it every day. Sure. But I understand that some people uh, may not fully understand or appreciate or agree with my view, and so to them I have to develop a business case. Right. And I have to you know a business case usually is tied to some outcome that people want. Usually is profit or revenue or something else. Right. Like this is why it's a good it's good business. To do DNI, and so I would call that like the second tier uh, sort of explanation. The first tier is because it's the right thing to do, and all the things that you and I have talked about in this podcast. But the second thing would be the business case. I would prefer to live in a world where it's the first one, and I don't have to go to the second one. But okay, I realize that I'm not to compromise. Going back to compromise, and to some people, I'm gonna have to share the business case. But I think you know, going back to old national and the things that we do. I already talked about our executive leadership team and how diverse that is. And Jim Ryan's got a phenomenal uh, executive leadership team uh, with tremendous women leaders and minority leaders. But he also started something a few years ago called the CEO Council. Hmm. And the CEO Council, I I think, was uh, 10. uh, I hope that number is correct. It's either 10 to 12 young up-and-coming professionals, all minorities or women, you know, included in that, that uh, formed the CEO council and were assigned special projects, uh, had direct access to the CEO, in, in which which is in, in some of these organizations, especially a $45 billion bank, really unheard of. Right. Uh, you have access to, you get some personal time and mentoring from all the other executives. And they were the ones who now almost two years ago started looking into the possibility of launching a minority deposit institution. Hmm. I am taking the work that they did, right? In the last few weeks, I've been absorbing all the memos, the research, the due diligence that they've done. I'm not starting from scratch. They did a phenomenal job doing that, but but they were, you know, given an opportunity to really, at a really high level, make a significant contribution uh, that only will empower them for the future, and and gave them a really neat opportunity to 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 contribute and to be a part and develop themselves professionally, and get feedback from the executive leadership team, including but not limited to the CEO. But we also have, and I'm sure you've heard of and talked to other people about uh, employee resource groups. You know, we call them associate impact groups. Um, that's our vernacular. But I'm executive sponsor for the Young Professionals Network. And we just launched uh, this this past month in July and held the the inaugural event here in Indianapolis. And you know, going back to leading by example, any chance I get, I try to uh, connect with some of our minority associates and and spend some time with them. I recently had the chance uh, we were integrating with another bank. You might have read First Midwest Bank um, not too long ago, and I spent three days in Chicago market, but not in Chicago, the Mag Mile. In Chicago Heights, you know, worked out of a banking center for uh, three days, serving directly, I would say 70 to 80% of members of the Latino community, but got to meet more importantly, the staff that works at those banking centers, some of which are Latino, some of which are minorities, and just have a newfound appreciation for what it is to be in 
customer right. service, yeah. uh, which we often forget because you're sitting in the ivory tower, right? And and you forget what it's like. So very humbling for me, but but really got a chance to see the work that we do day in, day out and how we can be most impactful. So I'm going to take all those learnings and and that, that uh, experience that I most recently had and really figure out ways to really tap into our young associates and figure out, okay, aside from the impact groups, which by the way, you got to fund them. I'm a firm believer, and I've told this to everybody who will listen. You can't create impact groups or employee resource groups, have all the Latinos talk to themselves, and then either give them zero budget or right. a mediocre budget to not do anything because then it's then you're really just like, you're just having a resource group for the sake of having a resource group. How do we activate those resource groups? How What kind of access will they have to upper management and middle management and what kind of opportunities they have? Buddy systems, mentoring, uh, those, those are the things that I think are, are the most impactful. And that's what I aim to do. And by the way, that's what the the bank is doing already. And so I'm, I'm really proud of that. But um, there's no silver bullet here. Mm-hmm. I think every organization is kind of looking for their own solution because each corporate culture is a little bit different. Sure. But I will tell you, Angela, it, it takes two to tango, right? We can provide all these resources in the world from a corporate perspective and and signify by you seeing executive leaders that are diverse, by you seeing these resources, by you seeing funding, we still need the young professional minority to show up. And I wish I can sit here and tell you today while I'm talking to you in the podcast that every single one of them shows up, but they don't. And, And I have not cracked that nut yet. I don't know exactly why. And I don't know if it's like I'm getting old and the new generation is a little bit different and they engage differently and they don't really know and they just want to sit at the table immediately, but they, they don't want to work for it. They don't want to do this. They don't want to network. They don't want to do that. They want to work from home. Like, I, I don't really know what it is yet, but it's a shame because people like you and I are here to help and we'd love to grab as many hands as we can and pull them up with right. us and and, uh, and and be as useful as we can be. But uh, we also need the young leaders to have that take their own leap of faith and come to these events and give it a try and and check it out and avail themselves of all the resources because then what are you left with? Uh, well, it's what's the, the saying, like you can show a horse yeah. where there's water, but you can't force it to take a drink. Right. You know, like right. we, 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 we have to somehow deliver the message to our brothers and sisters that these are opportunities that you can't afford to pass up. These are resources that you got to take advantage of while you're there. And that's how the magic starts. But if you don't take that first step, you know, there's not much left to, yeah, for us that's to right. do. Yeah. Um, so, Rafael, this has been, as always, terribly informative, terribly transparent. And I thank you for your authenticity as I only know you to be. So thank you for that. I, I want to end with one final question just about what you would advise our corporate leaders in Indiana, you know, as they're thinking about DNI, how to implement it, how to implement new policies or programs, um, how to make change in their organization. What can diverse leaders or non-diverse leaders do in their organization to truly impact change that will last beyond today or tomorrow, but have real impact for those young leaders you're talking about for their careers when they're our age? You know, what what can 
companies begin doing now, if they haven't already, as you mentioned, everybody's on their DNI journey, right? And people are at sure. different phases. But if you haven't started doing some things, what do you think there are two or three things that executive leaders can do um, to really impact their DNI and their corporate culture in a way that does show their employees and people looking at them from the outside, we truly are a inclusive organization? Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, always develop long-term uh, strategies, not short-term. Okay. So when I say the short-term, it goes back to, hey, let's celebrate Latino Heritage Month and have, you know, abandoned mariachis come in and <clears throat> play music and serve chips and salsa and, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm saying that sort of facetiously, but that those are literally words that came out of some people's mouths, <coughs> excuse me, back in I think 2005, 2006, while they were asking me for, hey, can you react to this? This is our strategy right. to engage with the Latino community. <laughs> I about cringed, right? <laughs> poor, poor, I had a heart attack there. And I'm trying to be diplomatic. Okay, well, you're going to want to you know, think about things a little bit differently. But so you got to have long-term uh, thinking. And and uh, the, the the biggest thing is that uh, th this whole uh, need for DNI. Is a is a is a the genesis of this is it goes back to the founding of our country. Sure. Um, so you cannot implement something in uh, a day or two or a month or two, whatever, and then all of a sudden, like, oh well, that didn't work. We didn't see any results. I'm like, are you kidding me? Right. Like we, we've been 200 years. Right. I mean, how about we give it a few? You right. know, this takes time. Right. You have to build goodwill. You have to show your authenticity. Going back to that sort of corporate authenticity, but. I think the first step in any organization who's maybe a little bit behind and hasn't had, you know, fully evolved and developed DEI, they need to start going to events. They need to start canvassing and doing an inventory. Like, what are some of those like big community-based organizations that are serving the Black community, the Latino community? You need to be seen there. Right. I know it's easier to invite people to come over to you, but but you need to go over to them. Yeah. You need to be in their environment. People need to see that you care. People need to see that you're there. Start making those contacts and those connections. Um, we already talked about, you know, leadership team, what that looks like. But, you know, again, going back to the conversation we were having before about the bad hire, you know, don't hire people just because of their ethnicity or gender. Hire people because they're qualified. And if they happen to be gender, you know, the gender you're looking for, they happen to be Latino, they happen to be black, perfect. But when you do find diverse talent and they succeed, then you will be much better off both internally for your own folks, but also in terms of serving as role models for the people that follow. Uh, and, and that way we don't have to keep looking back at NALP numbers and seeing that they haven't really changed since, uh, you right. know, the 20 years ago. So when you and I were talking, maybe one or two units right. better or worse than they were before. Like how, how many times are we going to have this, the same conversation? Right. So I think also be very critical about how you're spending your sponsorship dollars. Every company around town, most of them give money to nonprofit organizations. They're asked for, be a corporate partner to donate money for, buy a table at this event, buy a table at that event. I would love for people, if you're a corporate executive listening to this, do an inventory, go back two or three years, look at your spend. Now, Identify that, create a spreadsheet, identify that. How many of those were black uh, organizations? How many were Latino organizations? How many were Asian organizations, Native American, maybe women, maybe uh, uh, LGBTQI? But, uh, you know, if you just do a quick inventory scan to see where have we been directing our dollars 
I think that's going to tell you a story. And I would suspect that because there have been no intentionality or strategy involved in most organizations that I've talked to about that, it will be atrocious. Right. Like they'll feel bad about their numbers. They'll be like, oh my gosh, 95% went to non-minority organizations. Like we're giving this dollar, this X dollar amount. Like you can do the math. What percentage of your total spend is going? How about vendors? Right. Do a quick inventory scan of your vendors. These are like really low hanging fruit that nobody, you, numbers don't lie. Like you're spending your money where you're spending your money. Go look. Right. Like find out. And then those are very, very easy tweaks. But then stop celebrating it a once a month, you know, for a year. Like just be a sustainable you know, sort of presence in the minority communities. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this because I think, Angela, we, di we didn't talk about this, but it's something that I, it's been in the back of my mind. And as I think about this minority deposit institution and what we're going to do, I know I'm going to confront it. But I call it the paradox of one. And what that means is when I was young and in the city and looking for funding from different funding organizations and sources, they would look to me and say, hey, Raphael, we know you're on this board for this, you know, Latino organization, but there's these other two Latino organizations in town and we'd like to see you guys all collaborate with each other, right? We, we, we think that maybe there might be some duplication, even though there might not be, or there's very little of it, but the fact remained that there was two or three Latino organizations and they're all asking for money. Right. So then they kind of force us to have to either work together because we're not going to fund all of you. Well, does the non-minority community get asked those questions too? Because I equate that to saying, for example, like in the context of a minority-owned bank, that's like somebody saying, okay, Chase, go, you, Chase, go talk to KeyBank and PNC and you guys talk to each other and coordinate <laughs> because, you know, you're, there's too many here. Like... Like it's the paradox of one. It's like there can only be one Latino organization serving the Latino needs right. in the community. Only one black organization. And if you don't work with each other or you're not connected to each other, then you know the 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 funding the corporate partners. This is not just funding organizations, but corporate partners might look at you and and try to force you to have to work together or say, hey, we can only give to one. Well, why is that? Right. You know. So avoiding that the the paradox of one. There is more than enough need in our minority community, both black and brown, Latino, you name it, right. to have more than one financial institution, more than one nonprofit organization. And so I think companies need to be a lot more open-minded when they're funding and they evaluate that. You're, what you're supporting is not one organization. Don't ask them to become one. You're supporting an ecosystem. Right. And, it, and it, it's important for there to be more than one option. It's healthy. And by the way, there's tons of more than one option in the non-minority community and nobody bats an eye or thinks about it twice, right? Okay. So I just think those are important. And then the only other thing I'll say is uh, be intentional about DE&I and in some organizations in town that I've been a part of and blessed to be in leadership position with or board chair or whatever, we make DE&I a standing item on the agenda for every meeting. And, uh, and it's no longer compartmentalized into some diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that's, surprise, surprise, comprised of mostly minorities, right? right? Uh, so I think we have to permeate the, this issue, this topic, 
this this cause of diversity, equity, inclusion across the entire organization. It has to infiltrate every nook and cranny of the uh, of the company's DNA. And the way to do that is to make it top of mind yeah. for everybody, top to, top down, bottom up. And so, have it a standing item, you know, to talk about what are we doing about DEI or what did, what about what we talked about in this meeting? You know, are there creative ways of making it more inclusive or like? Even if it's the end of question that, you know, after you had, you've gone through the, your normal business, you know, uh, agenda to reflect back, is there a way that we can do this in an even more inclusive way? Jim, Jim Morris loves to say leadership is taking uh, your, your, your opportunities and seeing them, seeing them in their largest context. Right. And so it, that always stuck with me. And I really do believe in that. I think, you know, you can come up with a really good idea, and then when you're done, now you can even make it better right. because you can go back and look at it from the D and I lens, which you probably didn't do, right? Okay, because that's just the way things are, and then make it even better and have more impact. And so I, I do firmly believe that those are some easy things, although easier said than done, but but e easier things that companies can quickly implement. But you can't get to authenticity if you don't have a sustainable presence and engagement with a community. It can't be during the month of July or February or September, you know, yep. uh, it has to be year round. That's excellent, Raphael. Well, with that, we're going to end uh, this episode of the podcast. Raphael, thank you so much for lending your expertise, your experience and your authenticity, which I know you well enough to know that you will certainly do. This has been excellent and it's given us a different vantage point than we've had previously. So thank you for that experience. We appreciate you joining us. Today. Thank you for having me. It was great to see you again. Of course. Thank you again to Rafael Sanchez. And thanks to you for joining us on this 13th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the central Indiana business community. <laughs>